We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the one whose revelation we are learning about today. We ask the Holy Spirit to fill us up and teach us about you and future events that you have disclosed to us. Lord, this is a difficult chapter. We need your wisdom to know what you are saying to us and how to put your words into our daily lives. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, ladies, let's do a quick review of where we are. Last week, Teresa shared with us that we are outside of the chronology of the judgments and in in the chapters of 12 through 15. At the end of chapter 11, we learned that we heard the seventh trumpet and the third woe, and that will pick up again in chapter 16 in the bowl judgments, and Teresa will be uh, covering that. So I'm a big picture person. So before we get into chapter 13, will you permit me to do a 20,000-foot level of how we got here? Okay. So the Bible. Okay, I know this is my small one, which I can hardly read, but from beginning to end, it is God's story to mankind. His story. History. And the point... God created man, men and women, to be in relationship with him. Sin severed that relationship, and the whole Bible is God teaching us how to be redeemed back in relationship with him and be a part of his eternal kingdom. Within these pages, we see how God, who is spirit, intersects with the physical realm. At other points, we see mysteries behind the spiritual curtain which tells us the backstory behind all that God is doing and Satan's response. There are two scripture passages to keep in mind as we lean into chapter 13. Isaiah 14:12 through 15 says this about the fall of Lucifer and why he became Satan's, God's adversary. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. This is the background to the war between God and Satan. Satan wanted to be God, pride, the original sin. This is the same sin when the crafty serpent deceived Eve and consequently Adam to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in order to be like God, breaking God's one rule. Satan was probably gloating because he got God's creation of man to sin against him and no longer worship him, but God. In the curse that God pronounced as a consequence of their sin, God set in motion his path of grace to redeem mankind back to himself, so we will choose to worship him and him alone. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall crush your head, crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
Throughout man's history, Satan has been going after mankind to seek and, con- and kill and destroy in order to prevent God from setting up his earthly kingdom through his seed. So as we talked about in our group, Satan is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. He didn't know who the seed was. We have seen it all the way through the Bible. We saw this summarized in Revelation 12 and how he pursued Israel, God's chosen nation, and ultimately God's son. He thought he finally had God right where he wanted when Jesus hung on the cross. But Satan didn't hang Jesus on the cross. God did. Jesus climbed on the cross to take the penalty for every human being's sin. It says in Isaiah 53:10, "But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand." Jesus crushed Satan by being crushed himself. So you may think that this is the end of this war because Jesus finished the work of salvation on the cross. However, God wants his offspring back. Satan continues to chase after God's creation, trying to prevent men and women from becoming his new creation by faith in Christ. God is fighting this battle, ladies, because he loves you. God has gone through all of this because he is pursuing you. He has already gone to the ends of the earth for you on the cross. He is fighting for you. And the end will only come when God says so. When God, who has who he wants in his kingdom, out of creation. Satan has been permitted to be an accuser of the brethren before God's throne and to roam around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour on earth. He and his demons have been warring with God and his angels in the heavenlies for centuries over the souls of you and me. We come to the other bookend of the Bible, Revelation, where we see God wins the war. But looking at the the in-between, we saw in chapter 12 that Michael and his angels defeat Satan and his demons to the point that they are kicked out of heaven permanently. While Satan can't get his hands on the remnant of Israel, Satan will turn his frustrated rage against every follower of the lamb he can identify, Jew or Gentile. This leads us to chapter 13. So let's read it together. And the dragon stood on the, sea, on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of the heads as if it, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. 
It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and all who and all those who dwell in it worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs signs, great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Ready? (laughs) The overarching theme of this chapter is deception. As we review this passage, keep in mind that Satan is a counterfeit. He's a copycat stealing from God's plan and twisting it to make it his own. Jesus told us that he is the father of lies and and a murderer from the beginning. God's plan of the gospel has worked to bring people into God's kingdom, so Satan will copycat it and counterfeit it to attract the remainder of humanity to follow and worship him in his kingdom. Paul says that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light in Corinthians. Hence, we encounter his plan being carried out in, in what seems as the last three and a half years of, tri- of the tribulation. He begins his plan by bringing out his right-hand man, the first beast. Daniel calls this man the prince who is to come in 926, the little horn in 7-8. His rise is on the world stage when he makes a seven-year covenant with Israel, and he breaks it halfway through in Daniel 9:27. Paul warned that a day is coming when a specific individual uh, will come into power, and he calls him the man of lawlessness, and he will be the embodiment of sin and lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This man will ultimately lead the entire world into rebellion against God. This same passage tells us that he is presently being restrained by what many scholars believe is the Holy Spirit in the church. And when the church is removed, he will be made manifest and deceive the multitudes. Scripture reveals that the Antichrist will be a genius in intellect, in Daniel 8.23, in commerce, in Daniel 11.43, in war, in Revelation 6.2 and 13.2, 
in speech in Daniel 11:36 and politics in Revelation 17:11 and 12. In other words, he will be a charismatic leader. He will seem good-natured and we could even really like him. But he won't look like the beast on the outside. Remember, it's all about deception. Many students of prophecy call this man the Antichrist. John doesn't use the term Antichrist here, so where do we get that term? Actually, we get it from the epistle of the same Apostle John. In 1 John 2.18, it says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that this is the last hour. Antichrist is opposite in nature and character to Christ, opposed to everything of Christ, and ultimately wants to be elevated in place of Christ. John told us that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world, and in over 2,000 years of history, many have thought that they could identify the one who is still to come. Some famous ones were Nero. They thought Nero was the Antichrist, that he would resurrect and, and come back. Caligula. Domination, who was ruling at the time when John wrote this letter, Stalin, Jim Jones, and probably the most famous for us in our day is Hitler. As we go through this passage, we will see the attributes of the Antichrist. The description John gives to him in Revelation is beast, which is descriptive as a ferocious monster. John is using symbolism to describe the man of lawlessness or son of destruction that 2 Thessalonians 2 describes. Beast is found 36 times in the book of Revelation and numerous times in the book of Daniel. The prophecies of Daniel connect to those in Revelation and give insight into what John is seeing. In Daniel, it will sometimes refer to a specific nation and at other times a person. In Revelation, however, the beast is used exclusively to describe an individual. There are two beasts described in this chapter. Let's begin with the first beast, the Antichrist, a a future ruler who will live up to his name as beast here. Now the dragon, which is who? Mm -hmm. Is standing on the sand of the seashore, taking his position in the midst of the whole earth. The beast comes up out of the sea. So what does this mean? To me, the sea is a layered picture of what John is telling us. The sea is a body of water which symbolizes peoples, peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And we get that from Revelation 17, 15, where John explains what he means by the sea. But in addition to that, the Antichrist will come out of the peoples of the earth, perhaps a Gentile nation. To the Jews, the sea was feared greatly because it was dark, mysterious, untamed, and a place of destruction. It can also picture Satan summoning a powerful demon from the abyss, who then activates and controls the beast and his empire. In the Bible, bodies of water can be a picture of death, chaos, or evil. If you look ahead to Revelation 21, there is no more sea in the new heaven and the new earth. It's a picture of sin and everything associated with it being gone. So the Antichrist is coming up out of sin and evil. This is in contrast to Christ who came down from heaven, from the Father, who is holy, holy, holy. The beast is described as having seven heads and ten horns, just like Satan in 12.3. In other words, he looks just like his father, the murderer and liar. 
Again, Jesus Christ looks like his father, who is the giver of life and embodies complete truth. Some think the heads on the, on the Antichrist describe successive world empires over time. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the final kingdom of Antichrist. Revelation 17, 9 through 11 gives further explanation to this. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and we'll get to the woman when we get to 17. And they are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which is, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Mountains represent kingdoms in scripture. The five who have fallen could mean Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, which no longer existed at the time of John's writing. The one that is, is Rome, because John is living in, in that time frame. And the one yet to come is the kingdom of the Antichrist. So he is the seventh, but also the eighth, because he will be in power, but appears to be fatally wounded and comes back to life. And we'll talk more about that later. John 17 also tells us that who the ten horns are in verses uh, 17, 12, and 13. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with their beast for one hour. They have one purpose. And they give their power and authority to the beast. Ten is a number that symbolizes the totality of human military and political power assisting the beast as he controls the world. Horns always represent power, as in the animal kingdom, both to attack and defend. On the horns are ten diadems, or crowns, displaying power and authority. As we have learned, Daniel parallels with the book of Revelation most closely. Daniel shows that the human Antichrist will rise up from these ten kings in Daniel 7. John also is describing the numerical imagery found in Daniel 2, 41 and 42, which refers to the ten toes of clay and iron that Daniel prophesies will be a future kingdom, having the strengths of various world powers, yet mixed with weakness and ultimately crushed. That's in Daniel 2. 32 through 45, 7, 7 and 8, and 19 through 25. You guys really need to read the book of Daniel. It's like all over the place there. (laughs) The beast is described like a leopard, feet like a bear, and mouth like the mouth of a lion. Leopard is a metaphor for ancient Greece, alluding to the Greek swiftness and agility as their military moved forward in conquest, particularly under Alexander the Great. The bear is a metaphor for the ancient Medo-Persian empire, depicting the kingdom's ferocious strength combined with great stability. The lion is a metaphor for the ancient Babylonian empire, referring to their fierce, all-consuming power as they extended their domain. These animals in Revelation are the same as in Daniel's prophecy, as we saw in our lesson today, but in reverse order. Daniel is looking forward through these kingdoms, and John is looking back through history. Babylon the lion has already come for Daniel, and the rest are future, including the fourth beast, which is Rome. John, however, looks backwards. This is not the future for him. It is history. So he starts with the most recent, the Roman Empire, which he is living in and then moves backwards. John is parallel paralleling Daniel's visions and characteristics of the final world empire. 
All these empires were fierce and brutal in their own right, but the final empire ruled by Antichrist will have all their characteristics combined and then some. He will rule like the world has never experienced before. John sees the beast as the final world government, the Antichrist, the anti-God coalition. He will not only control all the political power, but the world economy as well. Until recently, this seemed totally impossible. But with all the technology, the digital marketplace and the digital currency coming into dominance, we can certainly see it to be possible in our day and age, can't we? According to verse 5, he will be given by the sovereign God 42 months or three and a half years to be the ruler of this world. In other words, he is on a divine leash. There are many who think that this will be a revived Roman Empire, having all the strengths of the various world powers based on those animals described both here in Revelation and in Daniel. One of the reasons they think this is because of verse 3, where John sees that one of the seven heads, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. This has resulted in much speculation since John's descriptions here are meant to be taken in a symbolic fashion. Perhaps this wound refers to the fall of the Roman Empire and the healing refers to the empire's revival. Rome's form of government under Caesar had ended, but it will reappear in the tribulation and control even more territory as it did prior to its collapse. This would correspond to a highly symbolic wounding and subsequent healing. Others see this as a reference to the Antichrist being physically stricken with what appears to be a mortal wound and being raised from the dead by Satan. Verse 14 states that the beast had the wound of the sword and has come to life. However, literally raising the dead seems to be a divine prerogative, this verse being the only hint that Satan might be allowed to perform such an act. If the devil cannot raise the dead... He is cunning enough to fake a death and resurrection enacted by Antichrist as part of his lying deception. This would certainly lead people to worship or follow this political leader. Do you see the copycat counterfeit idea here? It was the Roman Empire that put Jesus Christ to death. Now I know that the Jews were involved and on a spiritual level, it's our sin that caused him to lay down his life. But simply on an earthly governmental level, It was the Roman Empire. Wouldn't it be like Satan to resurrect it to have a second go at trying to defeat God? As far as resurrecting the false Christ, you can see the connection. Jesus rose from the dead after three days proving that he is God. Because Satan is crafty and cunning, he gives his man a resurrection too, deceiving the world that his man is the real God and they don't need Jesus Christ. He is now in place of Christ and should be worshipped, according to Satan. I think it could be both of these perspectives, or something completely different. However this plays out in the real world, the entire world will marvel. Whatever John is trying to communicate, we see the whole world worship the dragon, or Satan, who gave his authority to the beast. And they follow, and they are saying, who is like this beast? Who is able to wage war with him? Questions that replace the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ in their hearts and minds. On the seven heads were blasphemous names. In fact, I think, I can't remember how many times I counted, six or seven times that blasphemous or blasphemy is used in this chapter. 
Throughout history, when a monarch or ruler has identified himself to be as a god, he has blasphemed the true god. Each ruler who contributes to the beast's final coalition has an identity and wears a crown, exerts dominion and power, and therefore they blaspheme God. One of the most abominable characteristics of the Antichrist is that he will blaspheme the holy name of God. In Revelation 5, 13, 5 and 6, we read that there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. His blaspheming mouth is given by Satan himself. Satan hates God. He wants to be God. Therefore, it rings true that he will speak from his very nature prideful and hateful words towards God through these people. He speaks against God's name, which identifies and summarizes all his attributes. He speaks against his tabernacle, which is in the heavenly sanctuary in which Christ provides the better sacrifice, giving a better covenant to God's people. And he speaks against those who dwell in heaven, who are the angels, those who didn't sin and fall, and the glorified saints who are before God's throne serving him day and night. The ultimate blasphemy is what, is, is what actually begins the second half of the tribulation, where the Antichrist will break his covenant of peace with Israel, stop the sacrifices the Jews are performing, and stand in the holy place himself, declaring himself to be God in the midst of the Jewish temple. Daniel, in chapters 9, 11, and 12, calls this the abomination of desolation. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, when you see this abomination of desolation take place, flee to the mountains. I think this is where Israel goes into hiding in Revelation 12, where God protects them from Satan. There is no more grotesque blasphemy than the son of sin standing on the altar of the holy place, calling himself God and ultimately glorifying his father, Satan. This is the opposite of Christ. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself by setting aside his deity, putting on human flesh. Throughout his earthly life, he submitted himself to the Father completely. He never elevated himself nor defended his godness, even when he was put on trial, mocked, whipped, and crucified. What a contrast to this evil son of wickedness. The Antichrist is then given the authority to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Antichrist will be allowed to massacre those who are God's children, and he has dominion over every person on earth. All, and all earth dwellers, or unbelievers, will worship this world leader because they have rejected the real Christ, and therefore their names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So who is that? Yes, Jesus Christ has a book of life. Everyone who believes and accepts his sacrifice for their sins will have their name registered permanently in the book of life to gain entrance into God's kingdom and his presence forever. According to God's eternal and sovereign purpose before creation, from the foundation of the world, the death of Christ seals the genuinely redeemed. That is confirmed in Ephesians chapter 1 as well. The Antichrist can never take away their salvation, nor will the saved in the Antichrist day worship him. In the next section, we'll see that Satan even counterfeits God's seal. The book of life 
we will see again in the coming chapters as well. Verse 9 says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Notice this phrase is repeated from the assessment of the seven churches, except the end of the phrase is removed, what the Spirit says to the churches. Could this be an indication that the church is gone from the earth at this time? Just a thought. Nevertheless, this is a warning from God to the world. Believe in the real Christ, not the false one, or you will live with eternal consequences. The time is running short. Verse 10 calls for perseverance for the saints when they are living through these days. It's telling us that whatever your circumstances, God has you and you will be ushered into his kingdom. His sovereignty rules. Satan ushers in through Antichrist a great deception in order to get the dwellers on earth to worship him. Remember the scripture from Isaiah that we read at the beginning? Satan's end game was always to be worshipped as God. He will have the adoration of the world, but it will only be for three and a half years. Remember, God has him on that divine leash and allows the deluded to live out their rejection of Christ. This reminded me of a scenario in the Old Testament. Israel had no earthly king because God was their king. The people cried out to Samuel the prophet saying they wanted a king like all the other nations to provide for them and protect them. They wanted to look like everybody else. God told Samuel, when Samuel was so distressed about this that they had rejected him, they actually had rejected God. They were deceived into thinking that God as their king was not enough. They needed a king that they could actually see. They were walking by sight and not by faith. That is a small foretaste of what is happening here. They are rejecting Christ and his offer to usher them into his kingdom of light for the counterfeit keeping them in the domain of darkness forever. The all-out deception that Satan brings on the world is not finished. For those who thought the first beast was more than enough, the world is about to get into double trouble here. A second beast arrives on the scene, this time up from the earth. This could mean he comes up from the pit of hell with all the demonic powers of hell at his command. It could also mean that he comes from a lowly from lowly circumstances, secret and unknown until he bursts on the world stage at the right hand of the Antichrist. It isn't until chapter 16 that we are given the identity of this new beast. He is called the false prophet. He is a depiction of having horns like a lamb while speaking like a dragon. The horns on, on lambs are merely small bumps on their heads until the lamb grows into a ram. Rather than having the Antichrist multiplicity of heads and horns showing his power and might and fierceness, the false prophet comes like a lamb, winsomely with persuasive words that elicit sympathy and goodwill from others. He may be an extraordinary preacher or orator whose demonically empowered words will deceive the multitudes. But he speaks like a dragon, which means his message is the message of the dragon. The lamb imagery may also imply that the false prophet will be also a false Christ, masquerading as a true lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The copycat counterfeit lamb doesn't take sins away. He actually causes people to sin through idolatry. While the Antichrist comes as a political and economic leader over the whole earth, the false prophet will be a religious leader. 
He will also have worldwide influence and a reputation as a miracle worker. This beast will come with great signs and wonders, even calling fire down from the sky. Again, imitating the fire of the two witnesses exercised on behalf of Christ that we saw previously in Revelation. Humanity will be in wonder, ready to do whatever the false prophet tells them to do. Once he has them where he wants them, he'll give them two tasks. Make an image of the first beast, the Antichrist. Second, worship it. Religion. Man's effort. He has all the authority of the Antichrist because, like him, the false prophet is empowered by Satan. The fact that the second beast uses miraculous signs and wonders, including fire from heaven, to establish the credibility of both of them would seem to indicate that people will fall before them in adoration of their power and message. They are deceived. Verse 14 goes on to say that the deception will be so great that the people will set up an idol to the Antichrist, the image of the beast, and worship it. The false prophet uses trickery of Satan to make the idol speak as if alive, countering God's word in Psalm 135, 15 through 17. It says, the idols of the nations are, are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Did God really say that an idol can't be alive? Do you hear Satan in the garden? Did God really say? Well, he's doing the same thing here. Satan is once again taking God's words and throwing them back in his face to show that man will fall for the delusion of that an idol really is alive. Will it be a hologram, artificial intelligence, human-animal hybrid, clone, demonic habitation? Don't know. In our technological world, it's not hard to imagine such a scenario. We don't know except that Satan is demanding to be worshipped. And he will use whatever means possible to have this happen. At the midpoint of the tribulation, he gets rid of all the religions in the world. And through the false prophet, he sets up a global religion where he is the one being worshipped through the worship of the first beast. To further the enforcement of this worship, the false prophet will put in place the command for every person in the whole world to have a visible mark put on either their forehead or their right hand. Marks or tattoos were common in the ancient world. According to Barclay, a mark upon a person could stand for at least five different things. First, ownership. Like a branded slave, those who worship the beast are his property. Second, loyalty. Like a soldier, those who worship the beast are his devoted followers. Third, security. Like the emperor's mark on all buying and selling contracts in that day, Those who worship the beast accept his authority. Fourth, dependence. Like marks on all coins with the head and inscription of the emperor, again, those who bear it are the property of the beast. And fifth, safety. Like given a certificate after burning his pinch of incense to Caesar, it is a certificate of worship to the beast. Think about this. A person's whole physical well-being is now tied to this mark. Satan's mark will either be the name of the beast or the number of his name, 666. And without the mark, a person will be unable to buy or sell. 
The enemy of our souls knows that when you hold economics hostage for an individual, it will be easy to get them to do what you want. Have we not seen that in recent years? Without the mark, a person will be cut off from the basic necessities of life. Again, we have Satan replicating Christ with his own plan. Remember the 144,000 witnesses from the 12 tribes of Israel? We learned about in chapter 7, they were given a visible mark on their foreheads with the name of Christ and the name of the Father, making them completely protected from being killed from the Antichrist. Additionally, a person who places their faith in the atoning work of Christ for them personally is marked or sealed with the Holy Spirit. And according to Ephesians 1, he is a deposit guaranteeing our eternal salvation. Isn't that marvelous? By requiring the mark, the false prophet is imitating the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing those who worship the dragon and the beast, and he is ushering them into an eternity in the lake of fire. Religion is the satanic counterfeit of a relationship with God. When truth is rejected... Religion is taken in to fill the vacuum. Worship is forced out of fear and punishment. God designed us for a relationship and created a pathway for us to be in relationship with him. Therefore, worship is the natural outflow of that loving relationship between God and his children through Jesus Christ. Those who survive the terrors of the tribulation to this point will be faced with two hard choices. Those who refuse to worship the image of the beast will be subject to death, but will be ushered into the eternal presence of God. On the other hand, those who do, not, who do worship the beast will incur the wrath of God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12 says this, The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders, serving the lie, and every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. I think that this is part of God's judgment. The physical wrath is hard enough, but the spiritual wrath is worse because of the rejection of the true Christ. They have rejected God and his son, so now, giving God, so now God is giving them over to that rejection. Scripture tells us over and over that idolatry is an abomination to the Lord. Therefore, those who take the mark of the beast will be subject to the lake of fire, separated from God for all of eternity, according to future Revelation chapters. Down through the ages, many have tried to figure out what this number means. We do know that six is the number of man in the Bible, and he falls one number short of God's perfect number seven, pointing to human imperfection. Additionally, the human and demonic power is a six, not perfect as Christ is. The threefold use of this number underscores man's identity identity as emphatically imperfect, not almost perfect. Additionally, many have tried to identify who the Antichrist is and to no avail. I don't believe people will have the wisdom to figure it out until he arrives on the scene. When the Antichrist is finally revealed, there will be some way to identify him with the wisdom that God gives here in this text in chapter 13, by the name of the man of lawlessness or his number 666. 
It's unwise to speculate more than what God has already given us in his word. And finally, as we have seen in both chapters 12 and 13, the ultimate tactic of Satan is to imitate or counterfeit the things of God in order to make himself appear like God. He does this by creating what is commonly referred to as the unholy trinity. The holy trinity consists of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Their counterparts in the unholy trinity are Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. While the holy trinity is characterized by infinite truth, love, and goodness, the unholy trinity portrays the diametrically opposite traits of deception, hatred, and unadulterated evil. Satan is the anti-God, the beast is the anti-Christ, and the false prophet is the anti-spirit. This unholy trinity will persecute believers and deceive many others, resulting in their eternal death. But God's kingdom will prevail. And let's go back to Daniel for this. In Daniel 7, 21 through 22, it says this, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Woohoo! <laughs> oh, need that. At the very beginning, we read in the epistle of 1 John that the one final Antichrist was still to come. You remember that? That is still a future event to take place. But he also said that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world and is producing many Antichrists. If the spirit of the Antichrist was in the world in John's day, doesn't that mean that the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world today? Yeah. So what should we do? Well, the first thing we should do is listen to our shepherd. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We read about this in our lesson today. So how do we hear our shepherd's voice? Well, the first thing is, you must belong to the shepherd. If you're not hearing Jesus' voice, maybe you've never received him as your savior for yourself. I encourage you today to not delay. The clock is ticking towards the events in Jesus' revelation. You can pray right now, right, right here at this very second, with your heart and mind, confessing to Jesus that you are a sinner and you need him to save you. Ask him for his blood shed on the cross for you to be the payment of your debt of sin and to make you his child today. If you have done this, the spirit of the living God abides in you. Please tell one of the leaders about your confession. 1 John 4.14 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent, his, sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him, and he in God. Isn't that amazing? As we grow in our relationship with God, we begin to hear Christ's voice more and more. This happens by spending time in his word and learning his voice and his ways. In prayer, we speak to him and we listen to him. We hear his voice when we're around other growing believers because they are part of Christ's body and, and we can learn from them. If you're not hearing his voice and you have already received him, maybe you're ignoring him. We've all been in this condition at one time or another. The ways of this world get in our, 
get in our way and we get distracted. But James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, purify your hearts, double-minded. John said in John 15:4 through 5, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Abiding is about relationship. It's not about a checklist. It's not about self-effort. It's about connection with the divine that brings joy and fulfillment. And before you know it, you will be bearing kingdom fruit that only the Spirit of Christ can produce. Second, we shouldn't be deceived. We should test the spirits and pray for discernment. First John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now is already in the world. Did you notice that Jesus is our plumb line? Therefore, we need to get to know the real Jesus and his true message to us. False teachers, false preachers, false believers won't, be, won't only be in the tribulation. They have been around since the early church. Paul was concerned about the church being deceived as well. He says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Our culture is pushing lots of falsehoods that have even seeped into the church. Ministers are celebrated when they announce they have walked away from the faith. People rejoice when others take a stand for something that is counter to what the Bible teaches. There are ads on TV presenting Jesus as accepting things that the Bible calls sin. Live your own truth is the philosophy of the day. I know, I'm going to show my age here. Do any of you remember the game show, To Tell the Truth? (laughs) I was really little when it was on. (laughs) It was a game show where three people, all of who claim to be someone, are questioned by a panel of four celebrities. One of them is a real person, while the other two are just imposters. The panelists take turns questioning the people about their subject and then try to guess which one of the three people is the truth teller. After a period of questioning and voting, the host would say, will the real so-and-so please stand up? When we go about our lives encountering all sorts of thinking and worldviews, we need to ask, will the real Jesus please stand up? Ladies, he already has. He has revealed himself through this whole book. He's in here. The real Jesus is standing up for us in the book of Revelation that we have been studying, showing us who he really is, not who the world wants us to think he is. We need to know the truth and pray for discernment so when a falsehood is presented, we not let it become part of our own thinking. 
We need to know the truth so that we can speak it out loud to a lost and dying people so they, they too can know the truth that will set them free. Third, we need to worship the one true God. As you spend time abiding, worship will be a natural outflow. Anne always said, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Why? Because knowing the real God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will help us to trust him in all circumstances, to walk by faith and not by sight, but most importantly, to worship him because he is worthy to be worshiped. And instead of proclaiming like the earth dwellers, who is like the beast, we proclaim with the scriptures, who is like you, O Lord, from Exodus 15:11. And we worship him in spirit and in truth. Fourth, we need to stand firm. Ladies, throughout the book of Revelation, we have seen example after example of persevering believers in the most tumultuous of circumstances. We are called to persevere as well. Our enemy comes to steal our faith, kill our peace, and destroy our witness. But our Savior came to bring life and to have it abundantly. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells us we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He tells us to put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil and to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Say the armor of God with me. Let's put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, and most important, praying in the spirit. We need to armor up, ladies. Remember, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And finally, our Lord calls us to be witnesses of the gospel. The book of Revelation is scary for unbelievers. For the believer, it should bring us comfort. Why? Because God wins. We know the end of the story. It should also motivate us to be Jesus' witnesses everywhere we go. The time of the beast is coming soon. Let's share what Jesus has done for us so they can be saved too. Will you pray with me the Lord's Prayer out loud together? Our Father, who art in heaven, Holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Let's say that last line again. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, ladies. Don't forget to get Nancy's book, which I don't see anybody out there, but...